1: A presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John
0: Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday is, of course, a weekly show that focuses each and every single week on exposing injustice in our nation's broken criminal justice system. Felony Friday is one of three shows here on the Lions of Liberty podcast feed. Every Monday, you can catch Mark Claire who hosts our flagship show where he interviews leading minds in the liberty movement and also hosts roundtable discussions. Every Wednesday, you can catch Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams, a weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. And of course, this show, Felony Friday, every single Friday. And you can be sure to get all three of those shows delivered right to your favorite listening device by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever the heck you get your podcasts from these days. This is the 86th episode of Felony Friday. So that means you'll be able to find the show notes with links and notes to everything I'm going to talk about with my guest today, at com slash ff86, and I don't want to waste any time this week. I'm going to get right to the interview with this week's guest. My guest today on Felony Friday is Johan Hari. Johan is a British journalist. He has written for many of the world's leading newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, The Guardian, Los Angeles Times, New Republic, and The Nation. For nine years, he was the lead op-ed columnist for The Independent, which is one of Britain's leading newspapers. He graduated from King's College in Cambridge with a double first in social and political sciences in 2001. He is the author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, and this is the book that we'll be talking about mostly on this show today, and it should be, in my mind, required reading for really everyone. So, Johan, welcome to Felony Friday.
1: Thanks very much. I love the idea that my book should be required reading for literally everyone. I want <laughs> you to go and like, assault people on the street, and if they haven't read it, like force them there, and then I want, I want Pol Pot style, to hell with liberty, make them do it. Excellent.
0: <laughs> well, if I mean, if anything, it would make them understand that the the force they've been using against these people for years in the war on drugs has been has been so wrong and so misguided. But yeah, we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna force people to read it, but highly recommend it. We'll say that. <laughs> Thank you. But thanks thanks for coming on the show. And well, I, I first say, you know, really, I just want to say I really want to I really
1: admire the the work that, that you guys do. You know, this is the the U.S. criminal justice system and the wider global war on drugs is so shocking. And it's so important that, you know, I particularly admire that you spend so much of your time speaking to the victims of this war because they speak for themselves much better than any of us can. So I really admire that you do that and thank you for the work that you do.
0: Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate the work that, that you've done. And your work was brought to my attention a couple of months ago. This, this book came out uh, in 2015. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's been cool. So uh, it yeah.
0: took—I don't know what took me so long to to hear about <laughs> it, but as soon as I heard about it, and I started reading it. Yeah,
1: and it's a totalitarianism that you were advocating before <laughs> it would have been forced on you years ago. So there you go. another argument. That's true.
0: That's true. But I've I've read it now, so so everything is good. And the first thing I think a good place to start is. What was your motivation? What, uh, what were the reasons why you decided to set out on the, the long journey? This was, I think, several years or more than a year that it took you to, to pull this book together.
1: Oh, yeah, much more than a year. I mean, I had a very – this is a very personal subject for me. Um, we had a lot of addiction in, in my family, and one of my earliest memories is of trying to uh, wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And when I, I started writing the book, which is about um, – God six years ago now, I knew we were coming up to 100 years since drugs were first banned in the United States and Britain and it was then imposed on the rest of the world. And, you know, when I decided to write a book about it for the 100th anniversary, it was 2015, was the, 2014 was the, the end of 2014, early 2015 was the anniversary. I kind of thought, ah, oh, this is going to be so easy. I know loads about this subject, right? I lived through it. I'd written about it a lot as a journalist. And when I sat down to write, I realized I just wrote out this list of questions for myself, right? Which I thought were just kind of obvious questions that I wanted to figure out the answer to, I wanted to write about the answer to. So, why did we go to war against drug users and drug addicts a hundred years ago? Why do we carry on when it doesn't seem to be working? What is the actual alternative like in practice? And what really causes drug use and drug addiction? And when I started to write, I realized I didn't know. The answer to any of these questions so that's why i went on this 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 as you mentioned this big journey over over three years to 17 different 12 countries for the book and five since um to, to really what i want to do is sit with people whose lives have been changed by the drug war and the alternatives to the drug war particularly in ways that relate to the subject of your podcast the criminal justice system and with and with people who went through the alternatives to the drug war in other countries and I just realized that almost everything I thought I knew about this subject was wrong. Drugs aren't what we think they are. Addiction isn't what we think it is. The war on drugs isn't what we think it is. The alternatives to the war on drugs aren't what we think they are. So it was exciting and a bit bewildering to realize that so much of what I'd thought was wrong.
0: So the, the title of the book, Chasing the Scream, where, what's the origin of, of that title? It
1: comes from this guy who I knew a little bit about before I started researching the book but not much a man called harry anslinger who who i think is the most influential person who no one's ever heard of he invented the modern war on drugs he, he's the first person to ever use the phrase war on drugs well before nixon well before reagan he was using that phrase in, t- in the 1930s and um i open chasing the screen with the story of how he stalked and played a role in killing Billie Holiday, which might, it, it might seem like a weird place to begin, but I open with this, this moment that I think is so important. In 1939, Billie Holiday walked on stage in a, in a hotel in Midtown, in Midtown Manhattan, and she sang a song. It's a song about lynching. It's a song called Strange Fruit. I'm sure lots of your listeners know it. And that night, according to one of her biographers, she got a warning from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics run by harry anslinger and it basically said stop singing this song and it seems like a weird place to begin when you think well what's that got to do with the war on drugs and to understand it you have to understand anslinger you have to understand Mm -hmm. billy holiday so anslinger takes over this this he takes over the department of prohibition just as the last days of prohibition or alcohol prohibition are occurring and obviously it's been a disaster they've had a war on alcohol and they've an alcohol won. right it's been a complete disaster And Anslinger wants to keep his department going. And he really built the the infrastructure and institutions of modern prohibition, drawing on the prejudices of his time. And it's not just, you know, I don't believe in the great man theory of history. He was drawing on these much deeper forces. And partly, so the title, Chasing the Scream, comes partly from this this thing that Anslinger was obsessed with. He, He really... There were two groups he really intensely hated. One was addicts and one was African Americans, or rather non-white Americans, because he also hated Latinos and and Chinese Americans. And his hatred of addicts came from this experience he had when he was a little boy in in, he grew up in a town called Altoona in in Pennsylvania, not far from Penn State. And he um he grew up on this farmhouse, and the next farmhouse down, there was a farmer whose wife had an addiction to opiates. And Harry Anslinger, when he was 10 or 11, he went to this farmer's house and the farmer's wife was just screaming. She was screaming and the farmer said, at this point, drugs were legal. And the farmer said to little Harry Anslinger, take our horse and cart, go to the pharmacy, get her the opiates and bring them back to us. So Anslinger did this; he brought it back, and the woman calmed down. She was soothed. And what Anslinger took from this memory is that we had to physically eliminate drugs from the face of the earth. That they were evil. That they destroy people. A lot of things that you'll hear Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump saying today. Okay. And and um, so I have this, this this image of him like chasing this scream that he heard across the world, and ironically creating these other screams in turn. Of course, in terms of Billie Holiday, she wasn't only an addict; she'd been she'd been raped for money as a child many times she was trying to stun the kind of grief and pain she felt with with um compulsive heroin and alcohol use Um, she was also an african-american standing up to white supremacy and anslinger was insanely racist i mean he was an extreme racist by the standards of the 1920s which Mm -hmm. gives you some sense about he used the n-word so often in official memos his own senator said he should have to resign he would he would have fit in very well on that charlottesville march last week and, and so billy holiday is kind of this symbol of everything he hates and sh- so he really resolves to destroy her and this i think is one of the key moments in the formation of drug prohibition on the war on drugs it's
0: it's really amazing how much one man can affect the the course of history and i mean such a such a entirely negative way. It's it's really scary when, when when you come to think about it. And one one ironic point is you said Altoona. I'm, I actually live in Pennsylvania, and Pittsburgh. Went to Penn State. I know where Altoona is. Well, haven't spent a lot of time there. But that area itself is it's in a terrible opioid and heroin epidemic right now. So the place where Hanslinger came from, where he was raised, and sought to eradicate drugs from the earth, and Right where that area was is now filled with drugs. So obviously, uh, he has he has failed, failed, uh, failed miserably in that That's quest. So
1: I, I didn't, I, I, I never really thought about the situation in Altuna. At the moment, I find that very moving because there's another irony, which is the place that Harry Anslinger's dad fled from, Switzerland, because he didn't want to do military service. Um, actually, is one of the places that's found the solution to, to, to do this, and it's actually ended opioid deaths. So if you think about uh, ended heroin deaths on their on their legal heroin programme, which I'm sure we can talk about if you want, but it's so interesting to me that his dad flees from this, this place that actually has subsequently found the solution to this place, which is just a horror show, partly because of the policies, to a large degree because of the policies his son introduced. I want to make it clear, I don't think it's just that, I don't, these are very deep forces in American society and culture, and indeed in, across the world in most places, And so I don't want to say it's it's not just Anslinger alone. It's that what he had was this genius for conducting the fears and the anxieties of American society and running it through this policy.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: It was like a great surfer, but you need a great wave, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I mean, a lot of people, I'm I'm a a libertarian, and I think a lot of libertarians fall in the trap where they blame the state, blame the government for a lot of these issues, when in reality – A lot of our neighbors, a lot of our friends support this war on drugs because they don't understand it. They don't understand the the pain that it causes and how counterintuitive it really is. Um, One one thing I did want to talk about that you talked about in the book, obviously, and I saw you talk about in an interview with Bill Maher, where really, as a society, we have addiction wrong. We don't understand addiction. We grew up thinking that if you use heroin, you use cocaine. That you use it a couple times, you get addicted to it, you become an addict, and your life is ruined. Um, Is is this correct or is is this wrong?
1: This is the thing that most surprised me in the research for the book. Before I did the research, I, I was never in favor of prohibition. And before I did the research, I knew some of the key points. like I knew that prohibition transfers control to violent gangs who then cause an enormous amount of murder and mayhem. Obviously, I saw that most horrendously in, in northern Mexico, which I reported from the, for the book. Um, but actually, the stuff that really surprised me was the stuff about addiction. I didn't know this. Um, to realise that something I thought I had seen, I had so profoundly misunderstood, was, was quite shocking for me. So it starts with a simple fact. 90% of people who use drugs don't become addicted to them. Um, that's true for crack. That's true for meth, which seems extraordinary. And I didn't believe it when I was told this. But the more I looked at the scientific evidence, the clearer it was. And that begs the question, well, hang on, what's going on with these, that 10% that's not going on with the 90%, right? What, what, what's the difference? And interestingly, it's not quantity of use. And I only really began to understand it. So if you'd said to me when I started doing the research for the book six years ago, you mentioned heroin, let's say heroin addiction. What causes heroin addiction? I would have looked at you like you're an idiot. I would have said, well, heroin causes heroin addiction, obviously. You know, we're told this story. We've been told this story for 100 years. It's become part of our common sense. It was certainly part of mine that that says, you know, if we stopped the next 20 people walking past your, your home and we forcibly injected them all with heroin every day for a month. At the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts for an obvious reason, that there are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately physically need. And that's what addiction is, that desperate physical hunger for the chemical hook. The first thing that alerted me to the fact that something not right about that is when it was explained to me by lots of doctors in my home country, Britain, if you step out into the street and you get hit by a truck, and you break your hip, you'll be taken to hospital, and you'll be given quite a lot of a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's the medical name for heroin. It's much better heroin than those guys in Altoona are going to be taking because it's medically pure. It's not the adulterated crap you get from dealers. If any of your uh, listeners have a British grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother's taken a lot of heroin. If what we think about addiction is right, that it's caused by the drug itself, What should be happening to all these people being given heroin in British hospitals? Significant numbers of them should be becoming addicted. This has been studied very carefully. It virtually never happens. And when I learned that, I just thought, well, that makes no sense. I don't understand it. And I only really began to understand I spoke to so many different people before I began to understand it. And the person who helped me unlock it was an incredible man I got to know called Professor Bruce Alexander. got to know him in Vancouver on the downtown east side there. And Professor Alexander explained to me This story about addiction that I had in my head that is caused by the chemical hooks comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your listeners can try them at home if they feel a bit sadistic. You take a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. It will die. So there you go, right? That's our story. You might remember there was a famous um, Partnership for a Drug Free America ad in the 80s that, that, that showed that experiment and showed the rat dying and kind of said something like, it will happen to you. Uh, in the 70s, Bruce came along and he looked at that experiment and he noticed something about it that the rat is put alone in an empty cage with nothing to do except use these drugs. So he thought, well, what happens if we do this differently? He built a cage that he called rat park, which is basically like heaven for rats. They've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex, they've got loads of cheese and loads of coloured balls and loads of wheels to run in. Everything a rat wants in life. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. And of course they tried both, they don't know what's in them, but this is the fascinating thing. In rat park, they don't like the drugged water. They hardly ever use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when their lives are shitty to none when their lives are good. And there's lots of human examples that I can talk to about this. But for me, there was a different professor, um, Peter Cohen in the Netherlands, who says, we shouldn't call it addiction, we should call it bonding. Social animals have a need to bond. And when we're happy and healthy, we'll bond and connect with each other. But if you can't do that, because you're isolated, or you're traumatized, or you're beaten down by life. Bond with something that gives you some sense of meaning. Now, that might be alcohol, that might be gambling, it might be porn, it might be crack. But you're going to bond with something. And so I think the main thing I took away from this is that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection.
0: That is profound. We're going to take a real quick commercial break. We'll be right back with more from Johan Hari.
1: Three, two, one. Hey folks, I'm Remso W. Martinez, the host of the one, the only, Remso Republic podcast. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're thinking, to be exact. This is a pitch for another show. I already listened to too many. But hey, I've got news for you. Each and every Wednesday, you can escape the mindless entertainment and loud political pundits by escaping to the place which truly is the clash of punk rock and politics, the Remso Republic. From comedians to politicians to real-life superheroes and liberty activists, we don't stick to normal often, as we hard-charge each and every week to bring you the freshest entertainment and news in an ocean of shows fighting for your attention. We're on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many more platforms. Don't miss out, join the fun, and be awesome.
0: Stay up to date with the latest news and updates by visiting remzorepublic.com. One of the human experiments um, that I've heard you talk about is in Vietnam. Could you just go through that? Yeah. So at the same
1: time as Rat Park, there's this experiment called the Vietnam War going on, uh, which obviously all your listeners know, know what that was. Huge numbers of American troops were using um, heroin. Sorry, huge numbers of American troops in Vietnam were using heroin. It was about uh, 25 to 40%. And if you look at the news reports from the time, they were really understandably very worried. They thought, my God, we're we going to have huge numbers of, of heroin addicts on the streets of the United States when the war is over. What are we going to do? And they were followed home. A lot of these soldiers and they were studied by the uh, excellent study by Lee Robbins for the archives of general psychiatry. And what she found was really shocking. Almost all of them just stopped. They didn't go to rehab. They didn't go into some horrendous withdrawal. They, they, they stopped using it it was more than 95 percent stopped and if you believe the old theory about addiction that it's caused by the chemical hooks primarily co- chemical hooks are real i'm happy to talk about that but it's primarily driven by the chemical hooks absolutely no sense right they've been exposed to the chemical hooks for a long period of time if you understand this different way of thinking it makes perfect sense if you took you or me and dropped us in a horrific, pestilential jungle where we don't want to be, where we have being forced to kill people and we could die at any moment, you and me would find heroin a lot more appealing than we do now. And then when we went back to our nice lives with our friends and our family and our work and the things that give us meaning, we would find it a lot less appealing. I think this really is the key to understanding what's happening in the United States at the moment. And something where I think this is a bit more controversial, but I think the people on our side, a, a lot of the people on our side have actually been misunderstanding the opioid crisis. So what we're being told is this story that the opioid crisis is happening because evil Big Pharma, you know, sold this drug and got everyone hooked, and that's why it's happening. Now, I hate Big Pharma as much as anyone. There's a lot to criticise them about. They did do things that were wrong in the opiate crisis. But that is not why – you can get opiates all over the United States. Where is opiate addiction concentrated? It's places I've been, rural New Hampshire – The the Bronx its where social suffering is highest. Places where opiate addiction is highest are also the places where antidepressant prescription is highest, where the suicide rate is highest, where alcoholism is highest. The main reason why we have an opiate crisis is because we have a despair crisis, because people are in really profound and deep pain, and they are turning to painkillers to try to deal with that pain. Now, it is not the best way to deal with that pain, but it is an understandable way to deal with that pain. And the problem is the narrative we've created that it's evil big pharma that did this, which is coming from people who would see through. You know, when pe- when you get these Republicans who in the 80s, Jeff, S- or Jeff Sessions now, who would say, well, crack, a- crack addiction is because of the drug dealer. Most people on our side would go, oh, you know, that's too simplistic. That's That's not right. And yet we're basically repeating that argument about the opioid crisis. And it's actually producing an even greater disaster because what's happening is doctors are being pressured to stop prescribing opioids and to throw people off them. Well, I can tell you what happens when you do that. I interviewed a doctor in Oklahoma City, um, Hal his name is, who explained it. And a lot of doctors will explain to you. They leave that office without a legal prescription, and they go and buy street heroin, and they're much more likely to die. Now, there are places that have solved opioid crises, and I'm happy to talk about them, but they've done the opposite of this approach. So we have to understand the very deep reasons why people are despairing. And look at when the opioid crisis spikes up. It's in 2008. Well, is there anyone listening to this program who can think of anything that happened in 2008? It would mean a lot more Americans were finding life a lot harder. If I think about it, I was recently, I was in West Cleveland recently, you know, uh, and, and I spoke to lots of people who, who clearly had opioid problems. And, you know, you don't have to talk to them for long to realise why they've got opioid problems. Their lives are unbearable and they should not be left in this condition and they need love and support and social transformation. And instead they're being kind of lectured. Uh, it would be like lecturing the rats in the first cage. You know, you've got to you know look at your moral character you've got to you know i mean it's it's crazy anyway sorry I, i'm ranting about that because i really feel this strongly i think this is i'm very concerned about the direction this debate is going even from people who i would normally really agree with and people who i do admire and good and decent people and it's not the points they're making are entirely wrong and they are pointing to legitimate criticisms but this the, the, it's leading us in a direction that is making it even worse
0: yeah i think that, that's a that's a really great point you brought up and especially about Um, targeting pharmaceutical companies. Pharmaceutical companies, as you said, have done a lot of things wrong. I mean, they've really been the the ones to profit the most, in in a legal sense at least, off of this despair problem that you talk about. But that is not, as you've pointed out, the root of the problem. The root is the despair is the people who are really have these, it sucks to say it, but they have these hopeless lives and they're trying to fill a void within themselves. And, you know, everyone listening
1: to this show will know someone who has an alcohol problem, right? Or will have known someone with an alcohol problem. Right. And I bet you they don't blame Jack Daniels or, or cause for the fact that they've got the alcohol. problem. And if someone did that, which, by the way, is what people said that caused alcohol prohibition. Um, most people now would be like, oh, no, that's that's too simplistic. Right. That's not how it works. Actually, it's that the person is really distressed and they're trying to deal with it through alcohol. And the alcohol makes the problem worse just as. you know opioids can suppress breathing there's all sorts of problems and with them i'm not i'm not saying that they're a harmless way of dealing with this problem they're not but but it's missing the point to blame the supply you know a good analogy is um in britain in the 18th century huge numbers of people were driven out of the countryside into these disgusting urban slums in cities like london and manchester and at the time something happened called the gin craze and it's a real thing. There was just a mass outbreak of alcoholism. Right. And at the time, what people said was, look at this evil drug gin. Look at what it does to people. It destroys them. And there's these famous paintings from the time of like a mother drinking a bottle of gin while her baby falls out of a window. And and, and things like that didn't in fact happen. Right. What we know now is, oh, right. It can't have been gin that did it because anyone in Britain can go and buy gin now. And people aren't getting, I mean, There isn't some mass outbreak of people's babies falling out of windows while they're so drunk they can't move. What changed? It's not the availability of the drug. It's that people's lives got better. They weren't living in these shitty, disgusting, degraded slums where they had no purpose and meaning and they'd lost everything they had. And so most of them didn't want to be drunk all the time. And I think there's a similar uh, collapse and transformation happening in Western culture at the moment. People feel really disorientated. They feel really lost. In West Cleveland, I was... Um, trying to get the vote out before the presidential election and uh, I remember being on this street in a place called Slavic City I don't know why it's called that, it's not Slavic and I was on this long street where a third of the houses had been like demolished a third had been abandoned and a third had people living in them and I knocked on this one door and there was a woman who I I found out was the same age as me, 38, from looking at her, I would have guessed she was 60 and we had this long conversation she was a very intelligent person and And she was really angry and she was really distressed. And she made this verbal slip that's really stayed with me. She was trying to describe what the area used to be like for her grandparents and her parents. And she meant to say when I was young. But what she actually said is when I was alive. Wow. And I thought, that's how a lot of people feel, right? That's an extreme example. But we've got to deal with this very deep social malaise. Which is partly what my next book is about. Actually, that, that that we've got to deal with this very deep social malaise. Now, in the meantime, there are lots of other things you can do that deal with the opioid crisis. I'm not saying we have to solve all social problems before we deal with the opioid mm-hmm. crisis. But what we're doing now is the exact opposite of what you should do. And I'm happy to talk about the places that did solve it, if you want. Yeah, let's
0: yeah, let's, let's talk about some of the uh, you know some of these countries that have that have put some things in place that are out, way outside of what the United States have done. You have what Portu- Portugal has done with decriminalization. Uh, Switzerland, I believe, since the, the 90s, I believe, has had a, a legal heroin program. Canada just started one up. And one thing in your book that I, I wasn't aware of this to, to the de- degree that it was talked about, but up until, what was it, up until the 1930s, heroin was being prescribed by doctors. Is that right? And, and then there was uh, the crackdown brought down by Anslinger against these doctors. And at the time, a lot of doctors were speaking out against that. Um, obviously <laughs> doctors today cannot prescribe heroin, but is, is that, a, is that a, a step, a direction you think we, we could go into as we're solving some of these social problems to sort of ease into stopping the opioid crisis? Switzerland solved its opioid crisis
1: and it's worth remembering they had a horrendous opioid crisis in the, in the nineties. They had a huge amount, by Swiss standards, a huge amount of, uh, I know Switzerland quite well, my dad's from there, I'm a Swiss citizen as well as obviously being British and actually very close to where Harry Anslinger's dad came from, they had these huge uh, open street use people, you know, nightmare people injecting each other in the neck, just nightmare uh, situation. And it was really growing. And they tried loads of things. They tried um, mass arrests, problem got worse. They tried herding all the drug addicts into one particular park. Uh, Not a good idea, got worse. And then one day the president of Switzerland, Actually, she was, first of all, when she was the health minister later when she became president, a woman called Ruth Dreyfus, one of my heroes, first female president of Switzerland, first Jewish president of Switzerland. She she explained to people, when you hear the word legalization, what you picture is like anarchy, right? You picture unknown, you, you picture just kind of, yeah, anarchy. What we have now, she explained to people, is anarchy with the drug war. We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown drug users all in the dark legalization she said is the way you restore order to this anarchy and of course legalization of heroin doesn't mean you can't just go into the swiss equivalent of cvs and buy heroin what they did is they set up clinics if you've got uh, been to some of those clinics if you if you um you've got an addiction problem heroin addiction problem your doctor refers you to the clinic you go to that clinic you go at seven in the morning because swiss people believe in doing things ridiculously early um You're given your heroin there. You can't take it out with you. You you use it there. It's medically pure heroin. You're watched by a nurse or the nurse will administer it if you want it. And then you leave and you go to your job because you're given a huge amount of social support to get turn your life around, to get a job, to get housing. Um, There's a few really crucial facts about that programme. The first is, I just asked listeners to guess how many people have died on the legal heroin program in Switzerland since it began more than 10 years ago.
0: I think I know the answer to this one. Is it zero?
1: Not one person, nobody, not one, nothing, not one death. It's really worth stressing that there have been no overdose deaths in Switzerland on the legal heroin program and outside the legal heroin program, heroin massively declined and there's a much smaller number of deaths than there was. And the core of that, you've got to understand, so basically that's the opposite of what happens in the U.S. at the moment. So in Switzerland, what you have is prescribe the drug, plus give massive amounts of social support so they don't want to use the drug anymore. Over time, they won't want to use the drug anymore. What you have in the U.S. is the exact opposite. The minute your doctor finds out you're using because you're addicted, not because of pain, re- not because of uh, physical pain relief, you are cut off, you're thrown off. So you're immediately cut off. They have to do that by law or they can be prosecuted as a drug dealer, which has in fact happened to lots of doctors. And instead of getting social support, you get social stigma. You in fact get a criminal record if you then try to get the drug anywhere else you get, uh, which leads to all sorts of escalating disasters. So what the U.S. does is the exact opposite. And I had this really interesting moment. One thing that many things surprised me in Switzerland, but one of them was if you're on that programme, They'll give you any dose of heroin you want, except for one that would literally kill you. And you can stay on it as long as you want. There is never any pressure to cut back. And yet almost everyone on the programme chooses to cut down over time and eventually stop. And there's no, I think there was one guy when I was there, or almost nobody, who was still on the programme when I was there, who had been when it started more than a decade before. And I said to Rita Mangi, the wonderful psychiatrist who runs the clinic in Geneva, you know, why is that? That doesn't, we're told that the drug takes you over. And she looked at me like I was stupid. And she said, well, cause their lives get better. And as their lives get better, they don't want to be anesthetized so much. And it seems so obvious. And yet it's the exact antithesis of the war on drugs. When I was there, I kept thinking about how in Arizona, not long before I had gone out in, in one of the prisons run by Joe Arpaio, who I interviewed, who obviously is in the news at the moment for various reasons because Trump might be about to pardon him, um, you know, uh, for, for his racist um, search policies. But, the, 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 you know, I went out with a group of women in one of his prisons who were made to go out on a chain gang wearing T-shirts saying, I was a drug addict, while members of the public mocked them and jeered at them and humiliated them. And I just thought, Jesus, these women, who, by the way, were incredibly dignified, moving, eloquent women, they're going to leave this place even more traumatised, even more fucked up. At one point in that, in that prison, the women told me they were terrified of this place they call the hole. And I said to the guards, oh, will you show me the hole? I didn't think they would. And they were like, sure, we'll take you. And then I kind of rose. Oh, of course, it's like a pantomime of cruelty. They want you to see the cruelty. So they took me to this hole. If you commit an offence within the prison, like you're found with drugs or a cigarette or whatever, you, you get put in the hole. It's a concrete, it's a hole. It's a concrete hole. And you're put in there for a month. You're alone. You're with no one else. There's a window where you can just see the sky, but there's nothing else. There's no TV. There's nothing. And I looked at the hole and I suddenly thought, this is the closest you could get to an exact replica of the cages that guaranteed addiction in rats. And this is what we're doing to these women, thinking it will cure them of their addiction. That, the, the, In that moment, the kind of utter madness of what we do was really clear to me. And once you understand that addiction is driven by pain and suffering, right, it's a way of trying to deal with pain and suffering. It's a way of trying to not be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. Suddenly you realize why the war on drugs is such a disastrous failure, right? Because it it inflicts more pain on people. Sometimes people say, oh, the war on drugs doesn't work when it comes to addiction. It's much worse than that. It's not that it doesn't work. It's not like giving people, I don't know, asparagus or a placebo. It makes the problem worse. The addiction crisis is worse because we do this. In fact, it kills lots of people. Um, so, yeah. Sorry, that's that. Was, <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm ranting again. Sorry.
0: No, no, that's I mean, that's that's profound stuff and, and so important. Um, I mean, we, we could probably talk for an hour or two hours, but unfortunately, we, we don't have that much time today. Uh, before I let you go, Johan, and I'd love to have you back on to talk about your new book or just to continue to talk about this at a later time. But could you just share with my audience where they can uh, learn more about you, where they can uh, find your work, where they can follow you on social media?
1: You know, I had a funny experience about this recently. I did a radio interview and I went through all the like stuff, like Twitter and Facebook, which I'll do in a minute. And the host said, "What's your Snapchat?" And I was like. <laughs> I'm a 38 year old man. Right? <laughs> the only 38 year olds on Snapchat are surely child molesters, right? This is not like, do not trust a 38 year old on Snapchat. Um, anyway, my, so on Twitter, I am J O H A N N H A R I one zero one. Uh, the book has a really active Facebook page. It's, um, facebook.com slash chasing the screen. Um, you can find out loads. Of, so on the book's website, you can uh, take a quiz to see how much you know about this stuff, but also you can listen to the audio of lots of the people we've been talking about. Bruce Alexander, those women in Arizona and um, the people who led the Swiss heroin legalization, loads of people. So that's www.chasingthescreen.com. And what am I leaving out? Not Snapchat. Um, <laughs> I have an Instagram and I've forgotten what it is. I think it's slash Johan Hari, which so is my name. And I feel like I'm forgetting something, but I don't know what it is. It can't be that important. Well, if
0: if if you think of it, uh, just uh, you can email it to me. I'll, I'll include all this stuff on the show notes page as well, as well as a link to your book so people can buy it. And I'm not going to make my listeners read it, but I will <laughs> highly recommend that you all give this book a read. It is it's it's phenom- phenomenal, and it might not change the way you think because if you're if you're listening to this show, you probably already think this way, but it will give you a lot of ammunition to bring into discussions and ways to communicate these ideas, to bring people to our side, to uh, really make this world a better better place and to help people who've been struggling with drug addiction. So Johan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it. Hope you guys enjoyed that discussion with Johan Hari. Uh, I know that I really did and For someone like myself, who, you know, I am consumed by this criminal justice uh, movement. I'm consumed by the stories I read every single week stories of injustice. And it's nice to, uh, you know, a, a lot of the stuff Johan talked about today, you know, I'm very familiar with, but he has some really fresh and I think very, very powerful ideas that a lot of people don't talk about, myself included. Um, The one thing that I really really just want to stress again is the fact that addiction, the root cause of addiction is not the drug. The root cause of addiction is deeper than that. It's in the the fabric of a a person's situation. It's in the suffering they're going through. Uh, People are hurting, and that's why. They're reaching for drugs or alcohol or some other sort of addiction to fill that void. And I think that's very important to tell people. I mean, that's a great way to get people to understand that we're going about this completely the wrong way by throwing these people who are suffering and then are suffering more because they become addicted to a drug. And then we throw them in a cage. And it's the same thing with uh, with drug dealers. Um, I mean, obviously... I've talked about it over and over and over again. You're not going to help the situation by going after drug dealers. You're not going to stop the people that are suffering, looking for these drugs by arresting drug dealers. If anything, you make the problem worse. And Johan's book, I mean, we talked about uh, maybe 5% of it. That's probably more. Uh, Actually, we probably talked about less than 5% of the book during today's show. And there's just so much history that he goes through, the history of the war on drugs, starting with Harry Anslinger and all the way up. He profiles different drug dealers. He profiles the the biggest drug dealer from, from back in the day, Arnold Rothstein. He profiles recent drug dealers in uh, f- foreign countries in the United States and really digs into the the culture that has been created by the prohibition of drugs. And I think it's a must read for anybody that cares about changing this cancer that is drug prohibition, eradicating it from society. Anyone who cares about this uh, needs to read Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari. I will link to it on the show notes page. So definitely, yeah, go there and check it out. I don't have much else to say, guys. If you like what we're doing here and you want more of it, if you want more content from the Lions of Liberty, if you want to help us, if you want to help us to grow this show, you can join our Lions of Liberty Pride. You can join for $25 per month where you get access to all of our uh, exclusive content. You get two free t-shirts. You get a drink koozie. And you get a monthly conference call with us. And that group is, uh, we're calling it, I think we're calling it the Lion's Guard. We've got several people in there now participating in those monthly calls. We just had one this past week. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but if you if you can't afford twenty five dollars per month, that's totally fine. You can still support us for ten bucks a month. You don't get the call. Um, you still get a discount in the store. Less of a discount in our in our store than at the twenty five dollar level. Still get all the exclusive content. Still get one free t shirt and a free koozie. If you can't make that happen, five dollars a month, you get all the content still you get a discount at the Lions of Liberty store. And it's all appreciated, guys. And it's going right back into this podcast. Recently, we hit our our first goal, uh, $300 per month. We actually passed it by, uh, $300 per month coming from the Lions Pride. And we've upgraded all of our recording equipment. We all got new microphones. uh, We got a mixer. So we could do some live interviews and uh, we'll help out with uh, the coordination of our our roundtables. And we have... You know, two guys in the same room, if you have Brian and Mark or you know Brian and Rico in the same room, it's actually going to sound great. So that's because of you guys and we really do appreciate it. So thank you from the bottom of our heart. And you can join at lionsofliberty.com slash support. And guys, all the exclusive content, obviously this what you're listening here today is not exclusive content. This is public content. We have exclusive content that only our pride listeners get. We have roundtable discussions, uh, bonus episodes, bonus questions with guests. We just had Julie Borowski on our regular show here, um, on a Mark Claire show on Monday, and we just released a extra little bonus segment with Julie Borowski. So you get all that stuff if you join the Lions Pride. Of course, you can help the show by subscribing on iTunes. That helps. And just one more thing, just want to mention Donor C. Donor C is the app that helps to direct funds, helps people to actually. Watch the projects that they fund, even if it's in faraway nations. Uh, we've you know funded projects in Africa. We're, we've we've uh, done one recently in Haiti that we've supported ourselves here at Lines of Liberty and some other libertarian podcasts. And we've come together as a group in this. Uh, this we have a Facebook group called Walk the Walk. Walk the Walk was started by a listener of this show, Clint Rankin. So check out Walk the Walk. Join that group. I'm not sure what the charity is right now, to be honest with you, that we're coalescing around. But join that group. You can get the information there. And you can also just go to Donor C. You can check out my profile, see what I've donated to. Check out Mark Clare's profile. And that's all I got for the show today, guys. I really do appreciate you listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up. And the fire is a liberty burning.